All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 14. On with the show, Edward Fry, Adam Forpaw, and J. Fred Zimmerman. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Bala Kinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 40 minutes or so to learn about some folks from Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill who became famous as impresarios. What's an impresario? The term comes from the Italian impresa, an enterprise or undertaking. Typically, an impresario is a person who organizes and often finances concerts, plays, or operas, performing a role in stage arts similar to that of a film or television producer. The term originated in the world of Italian opera. From the mid-1700s to the 1830s, the impresario was the key figure in the organization of a lyric season. The owners of the theater were usually amateurs from the nobility. They charged the impresario with hiring a composer. Until the 1850s, operas were expected to be new, and the orchestra, singers, costumes, and sets, all while assuming considerable financial risk. Now, nowadays, the term impresario has been expanded to anyone who puts together mass events for entertainment. For instance, George Ween and the Newport Jazz Festival, or Bill Graham and his various concerts and venues. Laurel Hill Cemetery has three of the great 19th century impresarios as permanent residents. Edward Fry was impresario for the Astor Place Opera in 1849 at the time of the famed Shakespeare riots, when dozens of New Yorkers were killed. Adam Forpaugh was a wealthy horse trader who more or less accidentally took over a circus, but gave P.T. Barnum a run for his money. And J. Fred Zimmerman was one of a small group of men fittingly called the Theater Syndicate, which controlled a majority of theaters on the East Coast, essentially determining what plays would be staged and what actors would work. You will hear about all three of these men in this June 2020 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. In the first 75 years of the United States, there were dozens of riots by citizens for various reasons. Shays' Rebellion in 1786-87 was for civil rights and economic equality. The 1788 Doctors' Mob Riots of New York City 
were against grave robbers and their customers, the anatomists at medical schools. The Whiskey Rebellion of 1791-94 was to protest taxation of locally made product, distilled spirits, and three or four protesters were killed. Philadelphia's two major riots occurred in 1838 with the burning of Pennsylvania Hall, also called the Abolitionist Riots, and the Nativist Riots, or the Bible Riots of 1844, when Protestants and Catholics clashed in the streets over which version of the Bible should be taught. As many as 20 or more rioters were killed. But the largest riot by far, and the one with the most casualties during the first four score of the United States, was the Astor Place Riot in New York City on May 10, 1849. Somewhere between 22 and 31 rioters were left dead in the streets when it was over. What were they protesting? Oppressive government? Slavery? Religious differences? No, they were protesting dramatic interpretations of William Shakespeare. Hence the other name for the Astor Place Riot is the Shakespeare Riot. So what's the Laurel Hill Cemetery connection? Edward Plunkett Fry, born in 1816, was one of five sons born to William Fry. 1777-1855. He's buried at Laurel Hill Cemetery, Section L, Plot 57 and 58. The other sons were William Henry, 1813-1864, who's buried with Edward. Joseph Reese, 1811-1865, who's buried with the father. Edward Plunkett. Charles S., 1823-1843, buried with the father and Horace P. Fry. The father was a prominent printer, and along with Robert Vox and Robert Walsh, ran the National Gazette and Literary Register, a major American newspaper at the time published out of 63 South 5th Street, which in 1842 became the Philadelphia Inquirer. In 1839, Edward went to Europe to study opera and the management of opera houses. Edward's older brother, William Henry Fry, had become interested in music at an early age and ended up rather famous as a composer, a lecturer, and a music critic. In October of 1841, Edward and Joseph took over editing and publishing the National Gazette from their father, which explains the word editor on his tombstone. But next to that is impresario. That's because he produced operas in both Philadelphia and New York. One was the first English-language version of Bellini's Norma, Joseph having done the translation. Joseph also wrote the libretto for Leonora, for which William wrote the music. That is commonly called the first American grand opera to have been performed, and Edward Fry produced it. In New York, Edward was hired to run the Astor Opera House, also known as the Astor Place Opera House, and later the Astor Place Theater. It was located in Manhattan on Lafayette Street between Astor Place and East 8th Street. It opened on November 22, 1847. Now, some people thought that the main reason he took the job was to produce his brother's opera in New York, but that never happened. It was during Fry's tenure as manager 
that the Shakespeare riots occurred. The bad blood leading to the riot had started on March 2nd, 1846 at Edinburgh's Theatre Royal, where 52-year-old British actor William McCready was working the boards as Hamlet. In Act 3, his role called for him to assume an air of nonchalance, and he did a great deal to show that he was doing nothing. It was something that he invented. He was proud of it. But the air was pierced with a loud, explosive hiss, which stopped all the actors in their tracks. The offending patron was quickly isolated and ejected, but on his way out made certain that all present knew who had performed this impropriety. Edwin Forrest, he said, that's right, with two R's. Thus began an enmity between two men who were known in their own countries, McCready was from London, Forrest from Philadelphia, as the best interpreters of Shakespeare at that time. Now, there are many articles and books written about the relationship of these two and their individual careers. I'm not going to get into the details of that, but everything came to a head in New York City on May 10, 1849. McCready had announced that he would play Macbeth at the Astor Place Theater during May, during the opera off-season. Forrest immediately announced that he too would play Macbeth at the same time, but at the huge new Broadway theater. McCready was the darling of New York's upper crust who were still clinging to their English tastes. Forrest had attracted a coarse set of followers, common laborers and immigrants, especially the Irish, who were against virtually anything with a British tinge. The Forrest camp had recruited thugs from among the baseball players, at the Elysian Fields in Hoboken, New Jersey, where three years earlier the first organized baseball match had been held. McCready never stood a chance. By the time the play opened at 7.30 as scheduled, up to 10,000 people filled the streets around the theater, throwing rocks at the windows, shouting, and attempting to set the building on fire. And inside, Dozens of forest supporters bombarded the stage with rotten eggs, potatoes, shoes, torn up theater seats, and whatever else they could lay their hands on. McCready finished the play in pantomime and then hastily exited the stage. It was Edwin Fry who disguised him and led him through a secret exit to safety through the milling crowds outside. 100 policemen, supplemented by 250 state militia, showed up to quell the riots. After firing over the heads of the mob failed to break it up, they fired directly into the crowd, and people started to fall or to scatter. When the shooting stopped, several dozen people were dead or severely wounded. The Wikipedia article on the Astor Place riot gives a pretty good accounting of what led up to the event and the aftermath. After the riot, the theater was unable to overcome the reputation of being the Massacre Opera House at Disaster Place. By May 1853, the interior had been dismantled and the furnishings sold off, with the shell of the building sold for $140,000 to the New York Mercantile Library, which renamed the building Clinton Hall. 
The Astor Place subway station on the IRT Lexington Avenue line has a bricked-up doorway at the southbound entrance with a lintel inscribed Clinton Hall. Despite his good intentions, Fry was totally unsuited to the task of impresario that he had so blithely undertaken. Fellow impresario Max Maretzik wrote that the neophyte manager, quote, knew nothing whatever of the business he had entered upon, end quote. The seasons described as a, quote, bottomless quagmire of Byzantine intrigue, factional animosities, personal vendettas, and extempore illnesses, end quote, was a disaster. When it was over, Fry, who had lost a great deal of money, wisely gave up operatic management forever. Maretzik claimed that Fry had ruined himself economically. In 1853, Fry sued James Gordon Bennett, founder of the New York Herald. The case was covered in other newspapers as the Opera Libel Trial. Fry claimed that over a period of 14 months, Bennett published at least 12 libelous articles about him and his ventures, the reason being that, quote, he did not advertise in the New York Herald and because he would not pay blackmail to the newspaper, end quote. On December 15, 1853, the Superior Court judge ruled in Fry's favor, and Mr. Bennett must now pay Mr. Fry $10,000 and cover court costs. Edward Fry did one more thing worth mentioning. In his later years, he was a bedridden invalid, unable to attend opera performances. In 1880, at his own expense, he had a telephone connection from New York's Academy of Music to his bedroom installed. With the permission of Colonel James Henry Mapleson, who ran the opera house and would send Fry the libretti for whatever opera was being performed. In his bed, Fry would listen to the opera, read along with the libretto, and look at photographs of the singers, which he would gently pat when he thought they sang well, otherwise he would turn them over. There were no loudspeakers at this time, so hearing the opera required pressing a telephone receiver to his ear. Thus did Edward Fry become the inventor of electronic home entertainment. Edward Plunkett Fry was buried in a grave with a simple marker at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section Q, Lot 18. He's next to his brother, William Henry Fry, and the nurse who cared for him in his final years, Annie MacDonald. They're not far from the silent sentinel near Ridge Avenue. Time has taken toll on his gravestone, and part of it has eroded away. Edwin Forrest, 1806-1872, is interred at Old St. Paul's Episcopal Church at 225 South 3rd Street. But he has a connection to West Laurel Hill Cemetery. There's a large plot there in Rockland Section 188 with a stone reading, All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. Below that is a list of 19 names. The other side is titled guests of Edwin Forrest, and below that, another 16 names. These 35 people were former stage performers who ended their careers down on their luck and were taken in by the Edwin Forrest home. 
One of the other benefits of being at the home was free burial in the plot. Check it out the next time you're at West Laurel Hill. When you think of the American circus, what names come to mind? Obviously, the first is Phineas T. Barnum, 1810 to 1891. Then there's Barnum's partner, James Anthony Bailey, 1847 to 1906. Maybe the Ringling Brothers, but the five of them didn't really open their first circus until 1884. Now, in immediate post-bellum America, the biggest and only competition to Barnum was a Philadelphian named Adam Forpaugh, born 21 years after Barnum. In a 1907 article published 17 years after his death, the Cincinnati Enquirer wrote, quote, Adam Forpaugh's face in person and in portrait has been seen oftener than that of any other American dead or alive. That is a startling statement, but it is nevertheless true. End quote. Yet on the tours that I give at Laurel Hill Cemetery, virtually no one has ever heard of him. Adam John Forbaugh, with a B, was born in Philadelphia near the corner of 10th and Nectarine on February 28, 1831. He began life as a butcher boy at age 12, much like A.P. Widener. He worked for $4 a month with board included. He decided that really wasn't enough for his desire, so he ran away to Cincinnati for a year, where he worked for another butcher, whose name happened to be John Butcher. When that job didn't work out, he walked to Dayton and took a job with John Gray, a horse trader, who was also involved in butchering. I shudder at the thought, <laughs> but Forbaugh prospered. When he had made $20,000, he returned to Philadelphia and went into the stock business, first cattle, then horses. He drifted to New York and became the largest horse dealer in that city at a time when horses were the primary means of pulling the trolleys all over town. Then the Civil War came and it made horses very valuable and Mr. Forbaugh secured contracts to supply them to the street railway companies. He learned to take old nags and polish them before selling them back to the trolley companies. Along the way, newspapermen took note of him, and as a play on words, they changed his surname from Forbaugh to Forpaw, abbreviated number 4-PAW. He liked it, and it stuck. In 1864, Fourpaw sold 62 horses on credit to a traveling circus run by John O'Brien. When O'Brien could not come up with the $9,000, Fourpaw took over the business in 1865. He knew nothing about circuses, but he was a brilliant, if unscrupulous, businessman. He knew he needed a menagerie. He bought one from another small circus owner, Jerry Maybe. Forpaw paid $42,000 for two elephants and eight other animals. They were delivered to him in Chicago on April 14, 1865, the very day that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. 
Then he went after a celebrity in order to take advantage of his notoriety. He got Dan Rice at a salary of $1,000 a week for 30 weeks. Dan Rice was a household name in America, a humorist, a serious actor, a strong man, and a singer. Rice was also one of the models for the figure Uncle Sam. Adam Forpaugh now had himself a circus. Since Forpaugh started the circus as a wealthy businessman, he was able to plow the profits from the first eight years back into the show, and soon he had 20 cages of animals in his menagerie, and then 30, and then 44. His show got so big that in 1876 he had to build his own trains to carry it from city to city. When he last traveled with wagons, he had 300 employees requiring 35 to handle the tents and 65 to drag the wagons and animals from town to town. When he switched to rail, he had three trains of cars, 60 cages, 290 horses, and 400 employees with a daily outlay of more than $4,000. His boast was that he, quote, owns, controls, and exhibits more wild animals and individually possesses more show property than any single person or firm in the world, end quote. During his first 15 years in the circus business, he never once operated at a loss. Yet he intentionally came across as a country rube, speaking with a very slight Pennsylvania Dutch accent. He always referred to his star employees as performers and his candy butchers as very honest men. A candy butcher was a circus concessionaire. For 29 years, he sat at the front entrance to his shows, where he might see and be seen by as many as 10,000 people each week. It is said that he could count the house with astonishing accuracy, hence keeping his box office personnel from withholding his money. It is also said that he hired pickpockets to send into the crowds, and then he took commission on their plunder. He invested in real estate and eventually owned more than 200 houses in Philadelphia with another 150 in Brooklyn. Philadelphia was a big circus city. In 1850, soon after he bought the contents of Charles Wilson Peale's Philadelphia Museum, P.T. Barnum opened a museum at the southeast corner of 7th and Chestnut. It was called P.T. Barnum's Museum of Living Wonders. Forpaw used the southwest corner of 10th and Callow Hill streets for his circus. The intersection was just outside of the city's core, but centrally located and heavily traveled due to Ridge Avenue crossing the intersection diagonally. Patrons from out of town could easily attend the circus and not get lost along the way. On November 27, 1865, Four Paul opened the Philadelphia Circus and Menagerie, the first permanent home of his touring show. Acrobatic performances, animal acts, and theatrical entertainment were featured. You can find ads for his showcase through the late 19th century Philadelphia newspapers. His show was so popular that in 1868, he had two different shows on the road simultaneously. 
Some of Forepaw's methods were truly innovative. He was the first circus operator to separate the menagerie from the big top ring. That was in order to attract churchgoers who might be leery of the sinful attractions of circus acts, but still wanted to see the exotic animals in the menagerie. Now, despite Barnum's 25-year head start, Fourpaw quickly caught up. For many years, Fourpaw and Barnum were bitter enemies. Each tried to outdo the other in advertising and in exhibitions. One of the most famous examples of Fourpaw's unscrupulous methods was his rivalry with Barnum over the white elephant. P.T. Barnum had purchased at great cost an ostensibly white elephant only to discover upon delivery that it was pink with great spots. Fourpaw heard of this and sniffed an opportunity to one-up Barnum. In 1884, he whitewashed a regular gray elephant, called it the Light of Asia, and marketed it as the real thing, not like Barnum's cheap imitation. A reporter who managed to sneak up and remove some of the whitewash from the Light of Asia to prove Fourpaw's fraud was able to sell this information to Barnum instead of writing a story about it for his newspaper. And of course, all of it was great publicity. The newspapers covered it in column after column, day after day. So instead of being drawn in to see the real white elephant, people now had to see the fake white elephant. And the crowds grew. Fourpaw was responsible for many innovations in circus history, which influenced circuses for many years. He was the first to incorporate a Wild West show into his circus. In 1869, he was the first to use two separate big top tents at the same time, one for the circus performance, the other for the menagerie. In 1881, in search of new talent, he sponsored a $10,000 beauty contest looking for the, quote, most beautiful woman in America, end quote. Many believe this was the first beauty pageant in America. He hired the African-American elephant trainer Ephraim Thompson at a time when blacks rarely had positions of such stature. But Thompson was actually hidden from view while he was directing the elephants. Adam Jr., known as Addie, appeared to be in charge to the crowds. Occasionally, Fourpaw and Barnum would make peace and combine their shows. For instance, there was a Fourpaw Barnum show in Philadelphia in 1886, and a Fourpaw-Barnum-London combination at Madison Square Garden in the spring of 1887. Fourpaw slowly handed the show over to his son, Adam Jr., who served as ringmaster and elephant trainer in the years before Adam Sr. retired. In 1889, he sold the business, but his golden years in retirement were short-lived. He died in 1890 of influenza and pneumonia, toward the end of that pandemic. His family doctor brought famed physician David Hayes Agnew to bedside as a consultant prior to Adam's death. He was generous in his will, written the day before he died, intending his fortune to initially go to his wife and son, but after their deaths, to be split among Samaritan Hospital, which is now Temple University Hospital, St. Christopher Children's Hospital, Children's Homeopathic Hospital, which was located at 8th and Thompson, and the Morris Animal Refuge on Lombard. 
1946, they finally got the money. By this time, it was only $135,000. And there are records in the cemetery archives showing that parts of the estate were still being contested as late as 1983, 93 years after Four Paws' death. James E. Cooper, who in 1887 had sold his interest in the firm of P.T. Barnum and Company to Mr. James Bailey, eventually purchased the four-paw business to prevent it from falling into the hands of an English syndicate. Cooper is buried in Section 18, Lots 91-92, in the south section of Laurel Hill. When Adam Jr. died in 1919, he was buried alone in a modest mausoleum in a totally different section of Laurel Hill Cemetery from his father, Section U of Central Laurel Hill. And showman and entrepreneur Adam Forpaugh, 1831 to 1890, is buried in the family crypt in Section X, Lot 248, in the north section of Laurel Hill Cemetery. Forgotten today, he was the only man in 19th century America to give P.T. Barnum a run for his money as the greatest showman on earth. John Fred Zimmerman was born on May 30, 1841, at 325 Spruce Street in Philadelphia. He left school when he was 16 years old and served as an apprentice in the jewelry trade. On his 23rd birthday, he turned his back on the jewelry business and accepted the position as treasurer of the National Theater in Washington. He partnered with Samuel Frederick Nerdlinger, 1848 to 1918, who changed his name to Nixon, and they started acquiring Philadelphia theaters. In 1881, they obtained the lease on the Walnut Street Theater, and by the mid-1890s, Nixon and Zimmerman controlled the Broad, the Park, the Chestnut, and the Chestnut Street Opera House, the four most important theaters in Philadelphia, plus others throughout Pennsylvania and Ohio but they had their eyes set on even bigger targets. Early in 1896, six theatrical managers and booking agents got together in New York City. Zimmerman and Nixon Nerdlinger represented their theaters in Philadelphia and Ohio. Charles Froman, 1856 to 1915, was a theatrical producer and booking agent for a chain of Western theaters extending to the coast. His longtime business associate, Al Heyman, 1847 to 1915, was co-owner. Abraham Lincoln Erlanger, better known as A.L. Erlanger, 1859 to 1930, and Mark Claw, 1858 to 1936, were theatrical booking agents for virtually all of the major theaters in the South. The six men arrived at an understanding. They called themselves the Theatrical Syndicate. They decided that a theater company manager who booked his attraction in a non-syndicate theater would not be permitted to book that same attraction in any theater controlled by the syndicate. And they required that independent theater managers would either do all of their booking with the syndicate or they would not receive any syndicate attractions. 
They had just created a monopoly of nearly 1,500 theaters, nearly three-quarters of the theaters in the United States. No matter how successful a play was in New York, it would not be commercially successful on the road unless the acting company could book a performance every evening in a town where the receipts would at least cover expenses in the railroad fare to the next town. In those days of traveling by train, it was not profitable for the company to play only the large cities if they could not play the smaller towns in between to cover hauling charges. By 1900, the syndicate controlled the approaches to all the major cities, even when the cities themselves may have had independent theaters. Claw and Erlinger controlled the best houses between Washington and New Orleans and the route coming down from Ohio or Pennsylvania to Tennessee. Nixon and Zimmerman had complete control of the theaters in Philadelphia. There were no independent theaters remaining in Cleveland, Detroit, Utica, Rochester, or Newark. Froman controlled the western route well enough to make it unprofitable for New York companies to attempt to play independent theaters in San Francisco and other western cities. Company managers could no longer arrange their tours by dealing directly with theater managers. They now had to talk to Claw and Erlinger, who were the booking agents for the syndicate, and then the tour was arranged for them. The initial basic charge for this service was 5% of the gross receipts. Similarly, theater managers no longer had any choice in the matter of what attractions would be presented in their theaters. They took what the syndicate gave them on the dates the syndicate arranged, or their names were taken off the booking list and they found themselves with no attractions at all. The activities of the syndicate were a major controversy in America at the turn of the 20th century. One side believed that the syndicate had saved the theater by standardizing bookings. The other side said that the syndicate was a, quote, greedy octopus, end quote, which would eventually destroy the theater. Prior to the syndicate's formation, routing of road companies was almost always disorganized. Theatrical contracts were seldom worth the paper they were written on. Small traveling companies would pile up huge losses when they found themselves pitted against one another in little towns that could barely support one attraction, let alone two. Individual booking agents represented so few theaters that company managers could not book a complete cross-country tour through any single agent. Mark Claw was the spokesman for the syndicate. He made his case bluntly, quote, The theater syndicate has brought order out of chaos, legitimate profit out of ruinous rivalry. Under its operations, the actor has received a higher salary than was ever his. The producing manager has been assured a better percentage on his investment. And the local manager has won the success, which comes from the booking of accepted metropolitan favorites. I know of no one who has been worked in injury by the commercialization of the stage in America. Practically every first-class theater manager is now a member of it, and never in the history of theatricals have they all been so prosperous. End quote. And Claw was right. 
almost everyone admitted that their booking system as a type of clearinghouse for theatrical dates was a good thing. But many people saw that the syndicate was preoccupied with commercial success and stifled creativity, fearing to try anything new or experimental. Producer impresario David Belasco, 1853 to 1931, pointed out the dictatorial tactics of the syndicate reduced the owners of some 700 theaters to the status of servants who had absolutely nothing to say about what attractions they would feature. If the manager of a successful play, which may have cost up to $70,000 to produce, refused to comply with the demands of the syndicate, his production was stopped in its tracks, since there were no theaters in which it could perform. Eventually, the syndicate got greedy. They forced managers of successful plays to literally give them a financial interest in their productions, or they would not provide them with a route. And it was no longer a 5% commission. Sometimes the syndicate took a third and even half of the total profits. In return, the syndicate assumed no risks. If an independent manager's play failed, the loss fell solely on the producer. The peak of the syndicate's power was 1907. A federal court had ruled that unlike Standard Oil and U.S. Steel, the syndicate did not violate the Sherman Antitrust Act. The syndicate now controlled the activities of nearly three-quarters of the theaters in the country. And through Charles Froman, it was either the controlling or active manager of dozens of top actors. When English stars such as Sir Henry Irving came to America, they invariably toured under Froman's management. Froman also got the syndicate practically all of the better foreign plays since he was the only producer who could guarantee a successful American tour. Claw and Erlander announced the formation of a new company capitalized at $100 million designed to take over the theaters of Britain, France, and Germany. Now, for a while, the syndicate had a working agreement with a small competing group, the Schubert Brothers. Lee, 1871 to 1953, Sam, 1878 to 1905, and Jacob, 1879 to 1963. The three Schubert brothers, who immigrated from Lithuania as youths, grew up in poverty in Syracuse, New York. Sam was the acknowledged leader in the theater business. By the time he was nine, Sam Schubert was a program boy at the Grand Opera House in Syracuse. At 10, the assistant treasurer of that theater. And at 11, the treasurer of the Wheating Opera House in the same city. By 1899, at the age of 21, Sam Schubert controlled several road companies, six theaters in upstate New York, and one in New York City. And then during the next five years, he acquired leases on four theaters in New York, the Lyric in Philadelphia, the Garrick in Chicago, the Columbia in Boston, the Garrick in St. Louis, the Duquesne in Pittsburgh, and the Hyperion in New Haven. His holdings were now surpassed only by those of the syndicate. But on May 13, 1905, Sam Schubert was killed in a railroad accident in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He was 27 years old. After Sam's death, 
his brothers made a temporary working agreement with the syndicate and devoted the next two or three years to consolidating and solidifying their holdings. By 1908, the Schuberts and their allies were strong enough to challenge the syndicate on their own ground, and the syndicate war began in earnest. By 1908, the Schuberts controlled theaters in most of the large cities, but the 1,200 to 1,500 theaters in the one-night stands were still closed to them. A manager could secure a year's tour for his play from the Schuberts, but not a second or third year in the profitable one-night territory, nor could he get from city to city without great expense. The Schuberts changed tactics. They began to collect individuals instead of theaters. They enticed away many of the leading actors and playwrights who had previously been booked by the syndicate. During the 1908-09 season, the theatrical syndicate found it did not have enough attractions to fill all the theaters it represented. In many cases, when it did send an attraction to a city, the Schuberts moved into the same city immediately after with a similar attraction but of higher quality and with better known actors. The owners of the small theaters who were booking through the syndicate began to rebel. The fall of the syndicate was almost as sudden as its rise. Early in 1910, George Tyler, manager of a long list of stars and plays, joined the Schuberts. By April, the circuit of theaters covering New England had declared their independence of the syndicate. A Pennsylvania and Ohio circuit voted to book any plays they chose despite Nixon and Zimmerman owning 25% of their stock. The defection turned into a landslide. In May 1910, 1,200 small-town theater owners throughout the country united to form the National Theater Owners Association. They declared their right to book whatever attractions they wished through the booking agency of their choice. This action was the death blow for the syndicate, and its hold on the American theater was now completely broken. It had lasted 14 years. And of course, people being people, the Schubert organization soon became the new syndicate. Now, J. Fred Zimmerman made many millions of dollars selling theatrical dreams to people at anywhere from 25 cents to $2 per ticket. Despite being a theater robber baron, he was generous with his fortune. For instance, along with other Philadelphia businessmen, he helped raise money for survivors of the Johnstown flood. During World War I, his theaters gave many benefit shows in which all proceeds went to relief funds. He proudly bought Liberty Bonds and encouraged others to do so. He also served as a director of the Edwin Forrest Home for retired actors. His estate gave a $325,000 legacy to this establishment. We will eventually talk about the Edwin Forrest Home and the Edwin Forrest plot of actors at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in a future episode of All Bones Considered. Zimmerman had married Emma Augusta Wetherill, 1850 to 1901, of Cincinnati in 1870, and they had three sons who went into theater management. Emma's father was of the Philadelphia Wetherill family, but had moved to Ohio for business reasons. 
After Emma died of complications from appendicitis in 1901, Zimmerman married Vesta Howard Sawtell in 1903. She was 1868 to 1918. Vesta was the daughter of prominent Boston homeopathic physician George Bassett Sawtell, and only three years older than Zimmerman's oldest son. Now, the oldest son, J. Fred Freddie Zimmerman, Jr., 1871 to 1948, was part of the syndicate and managed the Chestnut Street Theater and Chestnut Street Opera House. After his father withdrew from the syndicate, Freddie managed vaudeville theaters and motion picture theaters, which had started drawing audiences away from live theater. He was married to actress Ethel Hart Jackson, 1877 to 1957, in 1902, but they divorced in 1908. Ethel was the original Mary Widow in Franz Lehar's opera of the same name. She was singing that role at Philadelphia's Chestnut Street Opera House, managed by her husband, on August 15, 1907, when industrialist Robert N. Carson collapsed and died at the end of the first act. I talked about him in the podcast, A Night at the Opera. Freddie then secretly married actress Grace Rankin, 1885-1978, in 1910. While they were honeymooning in London and Paris, Freddie purchased the last will and testament of William Penn. He retired from the theater in 1919 and lived another 29 years. And then Grace outlived him by 29 years. The second son, Charles Edward Zimmerman, 1877-1906, also became a theatrical producer, but he died after being knocked off the stage into the orchestra pit by a prop automobile in 1906. He was married to actress Mary Berger, whose stage name was Marie Rose. The third son, Frank Gretchel Zimmerman, 1881-1927, also managed theaters. He married Minna Lee in 1903, but he committed suicide in 1927 in the bathroom of his apartment at 46th and Pine. Money was not the issue. He had inherited $3 million from his father only two years before. What about the other syndicate members? Well, Charles Froman went down with the Lusitania on May 7, 1915. But if you've seen the movie or the musical Finding Neverland, his name probably sounds familiar. He was played by Dustin Hoffman in the movie and by Kelsey Grammer in the musical. Zimmerman's partner, Samuel Nixon Nerdlinger, died in 1918. His son, Fred G. Nixon Nerdlinger, 1877-1931, eventually obtained control of all the theaters in Philadelphia, but he was shot dead by his fifth wife in their apartment on the French Riviera. She was acquitted on the grounds of self-defense. The Nixon Nerdlingers are buried at Mount Sinai Cemetery in Philadelphia. When J. Fred Zimmerman died in 1925, he was interred in the family mausoleum, bridge section, lot 9. All three sons and both wives are with him. His obituaries were glowing. During his 60 years in the business, he seemed to know everyone and go everywhere. He was a giant of American theater. 
now featured at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Their legacies, the women of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. An exhibit that celebrates the achievements of 16 women buried at Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries. This exhibit is just one way that the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are celebrating 100 women for the 100 years since the passing of the 19th Amendment. The exhibit is on display in the museum at Laurel Hill Cemetery through Thursday, December 31st, 2020, and is open to the public Monday through Friday from 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturday and Sunday from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., when the cemetery office reopens after the lockdown. The exhibit is free, but donations to the Friends of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemeteries are greatly appreciated. And speaking of lockdown, the cemeteries are open for you during this COVID-19 event. Uh, you are free to come and wander and take pictures and walk your dog and just enjoy the outdoors. It is easy to keep social distancing at the Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. They are huge spaces. There's plenty of room as long as you are cautious. Next time, in the July edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, it's the Saturday Evening Post. Philadelphia was the magazine capital of the United States in the 19th century. Curtis Publishing Company was the biggest of the lot. In July, we'll hear about Cyrus Curtis, publisher of the Saturday Evening Post and of the Ladies' Home Journal. His first wife, Louisa Knapp Curtis, namesake of the Curtis Institute of Music. George Horace Lorimer, editor of the Post from 1899 to 1936. Edgar Seeler, architect for the Curtis Publishing Company building. And Adelaide Neal, associate editor of the Post. Laurel Hill Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of the more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year once the cemetery opens again for tours. Or you can download the app for each cemetery and chart your way across the property. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. 
They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around if you want to hear my references for this show. While there is much written about the Shakespeare riots, there is very little about Edward Fry. In fact, the definitive book on the riots, The Shakespeare Riots, Revenge, Drama, and Death in 19th Century America by Nigel Cliff, published in 2007, does not even mention Fry by name. So I had to depend on newspapers from the mid-19th century for most of my information. Now, I got some information from an 1884 book called A Record of the Opera in Philadelphia by W.G. Armstrong, published by Porter & Coates, Philadelphia. I also used a doctoral dissertation entitled Capital Entertainment, Stage Work and the Origins of the Creative Economy, 1843-1912, by Rachel Lockwood Miller. It was submitted in 2018. I got some anecdotes from there. Adam Forpaw was a lot easier to research. It seems like he was mentioned in the newspapers at least once weekly from 1870 up until his death. There was a lot of material to choose from, especially the battles that he had with P.T. Barnum. Now, while much of the Zimmerman material also came from contemporary newspapers, I got a lot from The Rise and Fall of the Theatrical Syndicate by Steve Travis. It was published in Educational Theatre Journal, Volume 10, Number 1, March 1958, pages 35 to 40. There was also a wonderful article by Professor Wayne S. Turney that I found at the Wayback Machine online. Turney is a professor of theater at DeSales University. I contacted him for permission to use his material. He also sent me a write-up of the Iroquois Theater Fire in 1903, but I couldn't find a Laurel Hill connection. Thanks for listening.